You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. Evil. It's something that's constantly in our minds when we rest. Like most of our television shows in many ways and movies couldn't exist unless we understood what evil was. Superheroes have to have villains to fight. After all, they have to be even in your regular sitcoms, they have to be less than desirable circumstances. They have to be overcome. Every worldview has to explain evil. That includes atheists, Muslims, Mormons, agnostics, and it includes Christians. Fortunately, there is someone who's written a book on dealing with evil and how different worldviews do it. Worldviews and the Problem of Evil, a Comparative Approach by Dr. Ronnie Campbell, PhD. He has been involved in higher education since 2006, teaching courses in theology, philosophy, Bible, and apologetics. His research interests include God's relationship to time, the problem of evil, the doctrine of the Trinity, and religious doubt. He is the author of For Love of God, an Invitation to Theology, and Worldviews on the Problem of Evil, Lexham Press, which we're talking about today. And he is co-editor with Christopher Nitnikin, on the Zondervan Counterpoint book, Do Christians, Muslims, and Jews Worship the Same God? Four Views, a book I recently read, by the way. Ronnie has a forthcoming article on James Orr in Zondervan's A History of Apologetics, a biographical and methodological introduction. Ronnie lives in Gladys, Virginia, with his wife, Debbie, and four children. So, Dr. Campbell, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Now... Before my audience, in case my audience doesn't know much about you, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, um, it's it's quite interesting. Uh, I grew up in a small town in rural West Virginia. Had no no indication that I'd ever get into academics at all. Um, but I did think I was going to go into ministry, so I went to the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, I got a degree in youth ministry and. Uh, then uh, made my way to Liberty University in 2003. And uh, at that time, I had no idea really what I did, wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something ministry-based, but uh, I didn't know what that looked like. And uh, so my first semester, someone said, hey, you really need to take this guy, Gary Habermas, uh, for apologetics. And at that time, I had no idea who Gary Habermas was. Um, I, I knew a little bit about apologetics. I, I really enjoyed theology, but that's about it. So I took his class and uh, kind of changed huh, basically my whole trajectory. Um, I was going to get an MDiv and decided just to finish up a, a shorter master's degree, and then I went on to do another master's in uh, 
uh, religious studies, which emphasized uh, philosophy and theology, and from there went on to get a PhD in theology and apologetics. And so really that class with uh, Dr. Gary Habermas really changed the whole trajectory of my, my, uh, my, my career and where I was going to head and, and life and, and so forth. And in 2009, Gary Habermas was speaking at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, and you were sitting at a table with him and Michael Cohen, I believe Neil Qureshi, and Greg Kokar, and Ari and I were dating at the time, and were sitting there with you. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I remember that. Uh, you know, I had gone to the uh, SES conferences with uh, Dr. Habermas on multiple occasions, and uh, yeah, that night um, we happened to go out to eat, and I think that was we we may have met prior to that, but I think that was the first time we had any real engagement. Yeah, I, I suspect in future writings you're going to list that as the high point of your apologetics career right there. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> now, the, the question, though, that I know all my listeners are wondering about at this point, though, with such an important topic is, what is it with people who know Gary Habermas marrying women named Debbie? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you're going to point out, you know, uh, not only uh, am I married to a Debbie, but also uh, your father-in-law, right? Mike Lacona, <laughs> Mike Lacona. Yeah. He's married to Debbie and Gary's <laughs> first wife, Debbie. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't explain the phenomena, uh, but I will tell you, I, I, I know that uh, if, if the other Debbies are anything like my wife, then then we certainly all married up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, let's get into the book. I mean, there are several books that deal with the problem of evil. Why did you want to write that on world views and the problem of evil, and what makes that different? Yeah, actually, there was there were several things behind the formation of this book. Um, I noticed there were a lot of works dealing primarily with the philosophical problem of evil, uh, specifically uh, engaging the thought of folks like William Rowe on the evidential problem of evil. Um, and, and most attempts at interactions with, with natural or with, uh, the problem of evil, uh, by Christian theists generally engage naturalists. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but I, I didn't see much with, um, pantheism or process panentheism. And, uh, certainly there are a variety of other worldviews and we could have taken, I could have taken this book and, and all kinds of directions. I mean, because we could deal with uh, interact, engage with Buddhists and and Muslims and, uh, and various other world religions, but I tried to just couch it in broader metaphysical terms or, or these metaphysical systems. Now, granted, not everyone fits like it, you know these aren't cookie cutter worldviews. I mean, uh, you have Buddhists, right, uh, who aren't really uh, pantheists and in many ways are more like atheists. Um, so, so they don't really, all, all the worldviews don't fit really nice and neatly in these worldviews, but they are broad enough where I think that if you can respond to a number of issues, then you could really, um, answer most of the questions that you're going to find in, in various other worldviews. And so that's kind of why I took this broader umbrella approach. And also I really wanted to show that, look, uh, 
evil is not just something that theists face. It's not just something that theists have to deal with. If we have this phenomena in the world, this these uh, you know these uh, data uh, from the world, uh, the natural evil and and moral evil that we have to make sense of, then this is not something that only theists need to make sense of. These other worldviews have to also make sense of uh, this phenomenon in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing sometime in the future, though, another book dealing with things like different religions and a problem of evil. That, that was something I was hoping I'd see later on in the book. You know, I I was getting I, I would have loved to have done that, uh, Nick, but uh, I was getting at uh, hundred thousand words, and and my word limit was something like eighty thousand words uh, for the book, and so it was already getting quite expansive. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Uh, we don't deal enough with uh, the problem of evil in these other worldviews, and maybe that's something that. Uh, I could tackle later on. I, I would be open to that kind of thing. Um, um, but uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get it into this book. Hey, any publishers out there listening, then get in touch with Scott. Let's <laughs> get this done, okay? Now, I did think it was interesting how you said that you know, we, we can't all fit into cookie cutters of a belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is interested in Eastern Orthodoxy, and sometimes mm-hmm. she'll get, get together with her mentor. And, older lady in the Orthodox Church, and this lady will be talking to me and says, now, there are some things that, this is one area we disagree with Protestants, because see, what we actually believe here is this, and she'll go on and tell me, and I'm like, um, can I tell you something? Yeah, I already believe that. Oh, <laughs> it, it happens several times that it, it's too easy to think because someone holds to such and such position, they must necessarily hold to something else. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, interestingly enough, this book was a development out of my doctoral dissertation uh, and kind of has a bit of uh, influence not only from my dissertation, but also in my master's thesis, which was on God and time. And, um, you know, one of the things as I was researching this, I, and especially in my doctoral dissertation, I touch on the, the doctrine of theosis. Uh, which is an, an you know an orthodox uh, teaching in the Orthodox Church, and um, it's surprising there are a lot of Reform thinkers who really um, find there's something to that particular teaching in the Orthodox Church, and and uh, I think that sometimes we like to pigeonhole people into these these labels, you know. But you're exactly right. I, I mean, I think that uh, we we've got to be cautious of of just putting people in those cookie cutter type, <laughs> um, uh, you know, whatever, uh, just putting them in those labels, I guess. Okay, on a personal note, does the problem of evil really give you any doubts about Christianity sometimes? Is this something you're writing more for yourself, or is it something for other people? Um, I do struggle, uh, I think, at times with the, the problem of evil, and I think we all should. I mean, I think that we see the evil in the world. Uh, we see the pain and suffering that other people are going through. And it really should cause something within us uh, to, to, to ask what is going on here, you know. Um, and, and certainly I look at uh, certain kinds of things in the world, uh, especially with young children, 
uh, suffering. And it really breaks my heart at times. And, and even though I've written a book on it and I've put a lot of study into it, sometimes I still ask, well, okay, what's going on here, Lord? Why are, why are these children suffering and, and things like that? Or you see some of the atrocities that took place uh, during the Holocaust and still produces within me this question of why. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, when you think of, of, of doubting, a lot of times we, we often think of it mostly in an intellectual kind of way. But I think that doubts can come in many forms, as, as, and this is uh, Gary Habermas uh, influencing me here, um, but uh, we have emotional doubts as well as intellectual doubts. And, and I think for many of us, we, we struggle with, with these kinds of things. I, I find when I'm dealing with evil, or more nobly when my wife is dealing with evil, which affects me more, yeah. I can echo what C.S. Lewis said, and I can say, you know, this is what my emotions tell me, my head tells me otherwise. But mm -hmm. he says, the fear isn't so much that God doesn't exist, the fear is God is real, and this is what he's really like. Mm, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, that that is, you know, a, a, a fear that many of us have is, you know, okay, what is what is God really like? You know, what, why? And I think that's the reason the why question is so important that we have to grapple with that. Why? Uh, why does God allow it? But but I would throw it out, and this is a question that I haven't seen answered as much in the literature. And actually, Nick, we were talking about book projects. I'm actually working on a project. Hopefully, um, I just started the the proposal portion of it. But but the question of what what is God doing about evil? And and this is where I think I do find some comfort here. When I reflect on the pages of Scripture, when I read the Bible, and I think about um, uh, God's revelation to us, it seems to me that there's a lot that God is doing about evil in the world. Uh, and, and, and I think that even if we can't fully answer the why question, I think reflecting on and looking at what is God doing um, really helps to uh, keep those emotional doubts at bay. Mm -hmm. You know, some, you know, I'm thinking about also with how we see evil as a, someone interviewed me recently on my debate I had with Dan Barker, Stelman Smith, if someone wants to look it up on YouTube. And, and we, brought, we discussed a little bit of this thing that Dan Barker asking some about some instance of evil, maybe of a Holocaust, I don't remember exactly, but he gives them a, we can often relate to, I think it's awfully foolish to say, but we can relate to under certain circumstances. Well, you know, if I were a god, I think I would do things differently. Now, I think it's foolish to say, because mm -hmm. none of us possess omniscience and all this other stuff, and we act like we do. But on a certain level, we can kind of resonate with that, can't we? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it certainly that kind of critique. I mean, we look at it from our perspectives, and and we think, yeah, we would we would do things quite differently. Um, but as you pointed out, I think that you know when we think of of God's omniscience, certainly we're very limited in what we can know. I mean, even in our own, say we struggle with an, or we have an ethical dilemma that we have to, to wrestle through. A lot of times we really don't know which way to go with it and which way to take it. 
And, uh, you know, and, and that just highlights how much we really don't know. And so I, I think that um, I, I'm reminded of something William Hasker, he, he wrote an essay on this uh, about, um, you know, just uh, the idea of um, uh, the, the religious problem. It, it was on the religious problem of evil and, and just this idea of regret. And and looking back at the evils in the world and and uh, you know what if God had stopped all these evils and and so forth, but but one of the things he brings out and I think is really helpful is is his uh, emphasis on this idea that think of all the contingencies that had to take place in order for either you or myself to exist. Uh, you know, all these things, you know, my mom and dad had to get married just at the right time. And, and the example he gives is that he would not have even, uh, you know, been born uh, had it not been for the war because his grandfather had gone off to war and then came back and married his grandmother. And, and you just look at all these different little uh, contingencies that have to be just so in order for any one of us uh, to exist. And so, he raises the question of, you know, do we really regret living? And if we truly did, you know, uh, what about all these different things that that have to take place in order for us just to be be here? And so, uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting way and perspective of looking at that. I can't but think of how G.K. Chesterton said, "Every one of us is a great might not have been." Right. So when you're looking at evil, you have four different categories here. The origin of life, consciousness, the metaphysics of good and evil, and human responsibility. Can you explain mm -hmm. those for us? Yeah, when I was working through this, uh, part of the reason I chose these, I was looking at how some other folks had done this, and uh, one, C. Uh, C. Stephen Lehman, and also um, – Thomas Nagel and, and various others, and, and they were looking at some of these bigger categories like that. But if you think about it, I mean, um, suppose none of us ever lived, you know, no sentient beings at all ever lived, uh, then there would really be no problem of evil, right? Uh, if, 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 if there were no consciousness. And, and so those two things, it seems, seems so, to, have, to require some kind of explanation. Um, but the other thing, I mean, we think about moral responsibility. Well, what kind of agents are we? You know, we think of the, the various views on free will, compatibilistic free will versus libertarian free will, determinism and things like that. Uh, so, so in order to make sense of responsibility, we have to discuss that. And then finally, um, just what are good and evil? And I try to be as careful as I could when looking at each of these worldviews and explaining evil and good from their own perspectives. And I tried not to assume the the, the traditional Christian idea of, uh, you know, the absence of the good or something like that. Mm-hmm. But let's look at some of these also a little bit more before we go on. For instance, the metaphysics of good and evil. A lot of people don't think, you know, metaphysics is one of those words you toss out that sounds really smart, but no one knows what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we think about uh, those things that are, are, are part of ultimate reality or how things are, uh, you know, um, you know, whether the universe is all that there is or not, you know, or whether there is such a being as God. Those, those are all issues related to metaphysics, whether we have free will, 
Um, and, and so th- those those kinds of things enter into this discussion then on on the nature of good and evil. Um, what what is good and what is evil? And, and so a lot of times, uh, you know, people categorize those categorize those uh, mostly in just moral categories. And I think there is something to that. I think there definitely they are met moral categories, but they're also metaphysical categories. Um, because we look at the state of affairs that's in the world and we have to make sense of those. And, and so that's that's kind of uh, where I was going with that terminology there. Mm-hmm. So how do you define metaphysics? And I have my own definition, but I'm curious how you define it. Yeah, uh, metaphysics is that branch of uh, philosophy that examines uh, life's ultimate questions, uh, uh, you know, uh, ultimate reality, free will, and, and the like. And so, um, so it goes beyond uh, just what we can explain uh, via uh, any kind of uh, science or something like that or empirical investigation. So what stands behind uh, these physical things? I've usually thought of metaphysics as, you can see what you think of this one, the study of being as being itself. What does it mm-hmm. mean to be? But that's coming from a much more traditional Thomistic approach. Yeah, and I think I would probably, uh, yeah, I certainly think that that's part of metaphysics. I would uh, classify that as ontology, but I think there's certainly the, the connection between the two. Mm-hmm. So let's start looking at these different worldviews. First off is atheism, and I'm thinking of a start for the sake of so many of my audience, we need to define what atheism is, because a lot of people will say, well, atheism is just the lack of God belief. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do want to make one clarification. I, I, I look at naturalism, uh, mm-hmm. which is a little bit more broader than, than okay. atheism. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, atheism is the idea, as you, you know, there is there is no God or something like that. Uh, I, I know some people want to say it's it's uh, a lack of belief in a God. Right? Is that what you're saying there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as far as naturalism goes, I think we can make a distinction between metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism. When we think of uh uh, let me start with methodological naturalism. Uh, methodological naturalism has to do with um, the the way in which we approach empirical study, uh, with the assumption, say that uh, you know the world is nature is all there is, and, and so you could actually be a, uh, a Christian and hold to meth- methodological naturalism with respect to your scientific endeavors. Yeah, I don't um, think that that's appropriate, but I think it. Uh, I think that is certainly a possibility. I think um, one example I could use with this is recently I was watching Monk a lot on Amazon Video, it's a series I really loved when I lived with my parents. And you know, when a murder takes place, I don't just automatically go and say, "Oh, well, a demon must have done this one." Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, just yeah, and, you, and your your point here is is great. I I often think of uh, the X Files, right? Yeah. Um, you you have uh, Mulder and Scully. Mulder being the he's generally classified as the believer, and Scully is the skeptic. And uh, but but what's interesting about Scully is she's Catholic, but she's a fetist. <laughs> uh, but she approaches these cases as if there is no supernatural. Everything mm-hmm. can be explained scientifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So, so yeah, so that's, that's methodological naturalism. Uh, but metaphysical naturalism is the concept uh, that uh, nature is all there is. There is no God, there is nothing supernatural, nothing beyond the world, no miracles, angels, demons, or the like. Uh, you know, what you see is what you get. Uh, when we die, we become worm food. I mean, that's it. No afterlife or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so certainly I think a good number of atheists fit into that category. Though I, would, I wouldn't say that all atheists are naturalists. You could have some who are perhaps Platonist and, and they use Platonism mm-hmm. as a grounds for their, for their ethics or something like that. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I, I think most atheists would fit in that naturalistic uh, camp. Okay, now let's look at them on each one. First off, life. Now, it could be easy to just poke holes in evolutionary theory if you want to do that, but there are a lot of Christians who hold the evolutionary theory. It is very different from the way naturalists hold to it and the way Christians hold to it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, for those those Christians who are uh, open to theistic evolution, um, certainly they're going to see that there is a supernatural. Uh, well, it really depends. There there are some that lean more towards a Dar- Darwinistic view, uh, but for the most part, at least they would take it that God got the whole process started. I mean, He set it up just so that you know evolution is something like the mechanism that mm. God used in order to bring right. about life. So in that case, um, you know, it, it certainly is different from, from a, a naturalistic perspective. Um, they would see it as that, you know, basically life evolved uh, from, uh, you know, just a single-celled organism and so forth and became multi-celled and, and until eventually we, we have human beings apart from any kind of divine interaction or supernatural interaction or anything like that. It's all natural processes. I consider myself a Christian who I don't debate the issue, but I'm entirely open to the possibility Mm -hmm. of evolutionary creationism, as it's Mm -hmm. called. But I I think I would be saying, yeah, but the idea of this stuff happening without God seems pretty unlikely. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think... it's 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 certainly problematic, I think. I mean, at least with the other worldviews, pantheism and process panentheism, uh, uh, pantheism and process panentheism, they, they at least have some kind of uh, reference to God uh, in the process of or in the evolutionary process. Whereas naturalism, it's you know, it's just it's these blind forces uh, producing life. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis in his book on miracles. Uh, talks about uh, rationality coming from irrationality. That just it, it just seems implausible. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we can't spend all our time on one topic as because there's a whole lot to cover, and that's why people who listen to this need to go out and buy the book eventually. But let's move on to the idea of consciousness, and this is another one that I always have. Before we move on to it, we really need to say, though it's a hard one to ask, Answer: What is consciousness? Oh, I think that's that's the problem in dealing with it. What what is consciousness? Obviously, it's it seems to me at least that consciousness is something more than just the physical processes. But if you're a naturalist, you kind of have to take that approach. 
Um, some naturalists would see that maybe consciousness is something that that supervenes or, uh, you know, they hold to um, epiphenomenalism, this this idea that these mental events that we have are in some way caused by these physical processes. Um, but for the most part, uh, there is no call, causation goes only one way. Uh, you know, it, even in those cases, uh, you know, it, the, these physical processes cause the thought, but the thought can never uh, interact with or cause anything to happen uh, in, in our physical states, so to speak. And so, um, so but, but consciousness, I would say, you know, it, it, it is some kind of self-awareness. Uh, it, it would have to at least have something like that. It, it, you know, for, for you and I, we, as human beings, we, we have a, an awareness that we are, and, and I, you know, a subject, uh, to what extent animals know that they are a subject, you know, it's, it's impossible. I mean, you know, Thomas Nagel has that famous article, what's it like to be a bat? <laughs> and, and the whole purpose of the, the, the question is we, we really can't know. We can describe all these things that bats do. We can re- describe how they react in certain circumstances and situations but we really don't know what it's like to to actually be a bat and, and the same way you know with with individuals so, you know I, I i i know what it's like to be a human being but i don't know what it's like to be you and so you have this subjective experience and and for humans you know we we can appreciate sunsets and not only can we think about the world that we're, you know, we, we can we can examine it, we can look at it, we can we can see all these these outside stimuli uh, that you know, it just just uh, how it affects our senses and things like that, and we we can see the world, but we can not only see the world, but we can reflect on our experiences of the world, and we can reflect on our reflections of our experiences. So there's got to be something more to it than these these physical processes. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, we think of, of naturalism itself, you know, uh, some want to equate it as just chemical reactions in the brain. Uh, but that's one of the big critiques of it is how do, we, how do we look at that? I mean, is it like H2O? You know, you think every time you get H2O, you get water, right? But that's not how it is with our subjective experiences. Hey, Deeper Waters fans, Sean McDowell here. I'm a professor, writer, and a speaker. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate and value the work of my friend Nick Peters on his podcast, Deeper Waters. He gets on some of the top guests in their field and asks them some great, practical, timely questions. I hope you enjoy and listen to the work at Deeper Waters and pass it on to a friend. Okay, and again, we do have to move on, and we'll be talking about more about consciousness and life in every other worldview we get to. But metaphysics of good and evil, this can be another difficult one, because there are some atheists who uh, come out and say, where there isn't really a problem of evil for atheism, because there really is no evil. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's just it. I mean, there are some atheists or some naturalists who really want to hold to some kind of objective morality. They want to hold to some kind of objective idea of of good and evil. Um, but if there are no, you know, uh, if there is no good and evil in the world, then it really just becomes something that's subjective to the individual. 
um, you know, I, it, it's uh, less pleasurable for me or something like that. And so really that's what good and evil boil down to, uh, this hedonistic principle. What is it that brings me the most pleasure? What is it that causes the most pain? And, and that really, uh, f- to some extent, is is how many naturalists understand the the idea of of evil. It comes down to pleasure. I'm sure you've encountered this kind of atheist or naturalist before, whichever category you want to say. But I, I find that this whole denial it can never be held consistent because I I encounter me talk about. Uh, you know, there is no good, there is no evil, everything is a matter of choice, relativism is true, and God shouldn't have killed those Canaanites and allowed slavery in the Old Testament. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how? who who are we? I mean, if there is no ground for your morality, how can you say that some evil or something that happened in the Old Testament is, is a grave evil? Uh, you know, God's uh, – the genocide of these Canaanites or so so forth. Um, I, I think that – I mean what's all the complaining about? It's just basically it's subjective. You don't like it, that kind of thing. Um, if, if there is no real good and evil, if, if, if something like moral relativism is true. Um, but, you know, we, there, are, there are problems with moral relativism. Uh, you know, how, how can – I mean we think of an issue in today, today's culture like racism, right? Um, and, you know, as Christians, we can condemn it because we see that these these people are individuals who are made in the image and likeness of God. And, you know, God is the ground of the good and things like that. But if, if something like uh, moral relativism or cultural relativism is true, then how can people truly condemn something that happened in, in a prior uh, era, you know? How can they condemn some of these? Uh, uh, you know, we would consider as as real atrocities. How can they? How can they condemn those actions? Uh, you know, uh, if 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 morality is is nothing more than uh, social or con- uh, cultural or, or person dependent. Mm-hmm. So on a grand analysis here, looking at this, how does naturalism really stack up to the problem of evil? Yeah, when I, I mean, when I look at it and I assess naturalism, I, honestly, it, it just it seems to me a very um, weak system uh, in in answering the phenomena of evil in the, or question of the phenomena of evil in the world. Um, you know, we could talk about the idea of a thick worldview and a thin worldview, and I would I would suggest that that naturalism is a thin worldview. It doesn't really have a lot of answers. Um, and, and really, I, I think often people don't live their worldview out consistently. Uh, naturalists don't live their worldviews out consistently. Sadly, neither um, do we. Well, that is – you're exactly right. Um, there are times that we, we certainly don't. Um, but, but not only do they not do that, but they, there's really no, no grounds for uh, living it out consistently. So. Mm-hmm. Now, now, of course, this doesn't mean, as is often trod out by a lot of atheists, that we mean that all atheists are wicked, moral, cesspools of evil. But thankfully, there are some atheists that are wonderful people out there. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, there are some people that, you know, if you look at them, they have a heart of gold. They genuinely care for their fellow human beings. They, you know, they take care of them. They, they, they 
contribute to charities. They give their time and service to other people. These are great, admirable qualities. And so we're not talking about that kind of thing at all. Certainly, they they, they do a lot of good. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, we're talking about, well, what grounds this? What, what basis do they have for... Um, you know, living this way. And I think that was one of the things that C.S. Lewis uh, realized, even as he was railing against God, you know, in his atheism, what grounds do I rail against God? You know, on what basis do I do this? Uh, He had no, uh, you know, basis for his, his own uh, moral views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I say that one here because there are a lot of atheists who walk away with this kind of impression. I'm left wondering, where did you get that idea? Because we've never said anything of the sort. At least, no academic of sorts I know. I mean, yeah, Preacher Bob down at your local church might say it, but you know what I'm getting mm-hmm. at. Well, I think that, like anything, um, some Christians just have a fear of of, of uh, people who have different worldviews than their own, and And so, you know, I'm sure that many atheists have had heard comments from Christians that aren't the kindest uh, or or kind of paints all atheists in in the same kind of uh, broad stroke, you know. Um, But certainly there are differences and really thoughtful atheists and naturalists as well. Yeah, I mean, as much as we talk about problem of evil being a problem, there are some atheists out there I know who look and say, yeah, problem of evil really isn't a problem for theism. I, I think Graham Oppie even takes that stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, but, but there's the, also the flip side too. You know, you have to explain the good, you know. Mm, yeah. How do we make sense of the good? Yeah. G.K. Chesterton said that one. He said, I'll explain the problem of evil when you explain the problem of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's move on to the next worldview, pantheism. And like the others, it's mm-hmm. always good to start. What is pantheism? Well, pantheism uh, in its basic idea is that the world is in some sense identical to to God or God is identical to the world. You know, pan, all theism, all is God, that kind of thing. And, and you really see this kind of play out in certain um, Eastern religions, uh, certain branches of Hinduism. Now I say certain branches because some some Hindus are actually theists. Um, but, but in certain forms of Hinduism, you, you see this, uh, notion that, that, uh, of, of monism, that, uh, God is, uh, one or, or all things are one. There's this, I, you know, there's only one kind of substance, one kind of thing. Uh, there is no duality. This comes out in the, uh, Bhagavad Gita, uh, you know, where you have Krishna, and Arjuna and Arjuna is, you know, he's a warrior and he's he's there talking to Krishna. And, and, and then you have this um, this whole dialogue that takes place. And, and in this, you have a point of enlightenment where Arjuna recognizes that all the mouths and all the eyes and all the different beings and all of these things are all part of the one absolute. And, and so you see that kind of thinking in, in um in certain Eastern religions, but you also see that in New Age thought. Uh, you know, you hear people say things like, I want to become one with the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now some people can wonder if this is taken to a, to a bizarre snack. Like you go out and 
the cow eats the grass where the cow is God. And then you mow the grass. And mm -hmm. are you mowing God? And are you being God doing this? You know what I mean? Is this just a cartoonish critique of it, or is there really something to that? Well, it's certainly it's – certainly, um, if, if you really believe that, it should influence your ethic. And I think it does influence uh, certain folks and their ethic. For example, some won't even kill a gnat or you know, some uh, will not uh, eat uh, a cow because that may have been one of my ancestors or something like that. But yeah, I mean, uh, there there is this sense of, you know, uh, if if all things are divine, then 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 yeah, do do we? Uh, uh, what what can we eat? What can we you know? <laughs> what can we do in the world? Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it certainly is perplexing uh, for for us. I think. Okay, so let's start looking at the main issues again. Life. How does a pantheist explain life? Yeah, I think most pantheists uh, would probably hold to some kind of, uh, even though they might not call it this evolutionary cycle or something like that. Uh, you have emanationism often in pantheistic uh, conceptions. Although I, I I question whether emanationism is pantheistic because if it's something that's distinct from the divine. Then, then really, you have something almost more like panentheism there. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, you do see that often. Um, you, you see it in it's kind of cyclical that the divine creates the world, and then eventually the world is kind of absorbed back into the divine. Uh, and, and you have uh, these systems in place like dharma and karma. Dharma is the eternal law, and Karma is this uh, this law of cause and effect that takes place in the world. Um, so yeah, it's more cyclical in that regard. Mm -hmm. So, and and they could also probably hold to some form of evolution as well, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And what about? Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say yeah, but it, often they don't. I mean, I, from. From some of the works I've read, it's not usually couched that way, but it, but it seems that, that that's a possibility. And what about consciousness? Because this could be a difficult one because somehow that consciousness is God, but it's God that doesn't realize it's God. Right. Uh, and this work, it gets tricky. Um, this is out of all the, the worldviews. Uh, naturalism was probably the most uh, consistent as far as just putting forth a straightforward world, you know, uh, belief system. Pantheists are all over the board. Uh, one of the, the main, um, pantheistic, uh, defenders that I engaged was Michael Levine. And, uh, often like he and, and various other pantheists would say, well, you know, pantheists can hold to this, but they can also hold to that. And so you do find a variety of different views on uh, human nature, uh, some are panpsychists or animist. Uh, this idea that you know there's spirits in in and you know like think of Pocahontas here, you know spirits in the tree, spirits in the animals. Uh, panpsychists, this idea that the basic constituents of reality have some kind of mental element to it, uh, maybe quasi consciousness, um, some more aggregate beings have uh, maybe fuller consciousness. 
so you have panpsychism, animism, uh, some hold to dualism, uh, and 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 not all pantheists are monists. And I think that's a misconception, at least according to Michael Levine. And so I try to I try to work from before you go that wrong with that. Let's just define what monism is, in case the yeah. listener doesn't know. Yeah, monism is the idea that there's only one kind of substance, one kind of thing, one kind of being. So if if we if we hold to monism, um, you know, there's there's not uh, any kind of duality. There's you know, you and I, we don't have our separate existence. Um, rather, it's just kind of uh, you know. Uh, misleading to think that there is this this separate existence among um, beings mm -hmm. um, so so that that's the idea of monism there mm -hmm. um, pluralism or or dualism you know pluralism is the idea there's more than one kind of thing more, more than one kind of substance mm -hmm. and then dualism uh, has to do well there's a variety of different kind of dualisms you can have cosmic dualism uh, uh, you know uh, an evil force and a good force fighting it out in the world or uh, you, you know, even Christians, I think, uh, would would hold to some kind of uh, weakened form of dualism. We would say that God and the world are not the same thing, and so God created uh, the world, and so the world and all that's in it is a, a, a different kind of thing or a different kind of substance than God. And, and so that's that's dualism. But but you also have uh, mind-body dualism. Or body and soul, however you want to hash that out, material, immaterial, and, and so you can have uh, two—I hate to say it this way—but two parts or two two different distinct things in the individual. And so some pantheists are mind-body dualist or or uh, immaterial, material dualist, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Then we come to the question of the metaphysics of good and evil, and again, this mm -hmm. can be a problem for mm -hmm. a lot of pantheists because if all is one in some sense, that if there are no, much more monistic reality and there is no distinction, then there can be no good and evil. Yeah, and, and a lot of pantheists would say that good and evil are kind of go beyond, uh, or, or, or God goes beyond good and evil. And uh, But, but um, someone like Levine, he's a little bit more, he, he does want to try to have some kind of objective notion of good and evil. And for him, he talks about the all-inclusive uh, uh, divine unity, uh, and, uh, and he would say that evil is that which goes against the divine unity. And so the good is that which promotes the divine unity. Um, but to what extent, I mean, and, and this is where it gets problematic, what exactly is that unity? How, how do we understand that unity? And I, I really couldn't find clear answers um, from pantheists on, on how to understand what that unity is. And um, I, I certainly think that's a problem uh, in, 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 in pantheism. Uh, it's really hard to nail down exactly what they believe about s some of these things. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the category of human responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for human responsibility, I think if if I were to pit pantheism against naturalism, I think they have at least a bit more. Um, I guess it's a, it's a bit more plausible than naturalism with respect to both human responsibility and the metaphysics of good and evil. Um, at least they try to ground it in something that's that's you know there is some kind of ground for the good and evil. If one takes something like Levine's per. Uh, 
position. Now, for a monist, uh, that becomes very problematic, like you were pointing out. You know, really, you can't distinguish between any good and evil. And uh, really, God uh, transcends any kind of, of good and evil and that kind of thing. But for someone like Levine, who, who really, he, he almost holds to something like divine command theory. Uh, obviously, uh, God and pantheism is non-personal. And so uh, God doesn't give commands like what we see in theism. But for the pantheists, again, it gets back to that idea. Uh, for the pantheists like Levine, it's it's more this idea that um, whatever promotes the divine unity. And so if some action A doesn't promote the divine unity, then one should avoid it. So, so in that sense, at least he has objective criteria for uh, recognizing whether some action is 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 morally um, okay, and so 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 in that regard, when we think of human freedom, uh, pantheists take a variety of different positions on this. Uh, you have someone like Spinoza who was a determinist, and so uh, obviously there is no there is no free will, there is no uh, aid. Uh, free agency here. But for Levine and a few other pantheists, they, they do hold more to a libertarian type of freedom. Uh, so in, in that regard, uh, a person can genuinely choose between two morally significant actions, some action A and some action B. And, 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 and so for them, I, I think pantheism does at least allow for some kind of uh, human responsibility. Mm. Yeah, this next question might sound odd to some people, but it's going to be asked because of the next four of you discussing. Do you think someone could be consistently a Christian and a pantheist both? You know, I've seen some people claim that, or at least on the internet. I, I, I come across uh, a few websites where that they, they claim that's the case. Um, I, I think it's problematic because it goes against many of the key tenets of, of the Christian worldview. I mean, coming out of Judaism, uh, a monotheistic religion, uh, this idea that God is the creator of the world, uh, creation ex nihilo. Obviously, in, in pantheism, that's not the case because it would be, um, it would be creation out of God or something along those lines. Uh, and it seems to smack against many of the core tenets of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Well, I ask that because our next view is pan-antheism. Mm -hmm. And that one can be even more difficult, I think, to understand for people. Yeah. What is pan-antheism? Well, let, let me make some clarifications here because pan-antheism is, is certainly an interesting view. And... And I do think that unlike pantheism, you can have some Christians who are panentheists. Mm -hmm. uh, Which so, is why so, I was asking this time. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, you have someone like Jürgen Moltmann who holds this idea that God created the world. He created the world ex nihilo. And for Moltmann, though, he's going to say, look, God um, created space within the divine self. And it's out of that space that he then makes room for the world. And so the reason he's a panentheist in that regard is because the world is actually in God. And so we think of panentheism 
uh, all is in God or God is in all or something along that. Some sometimes panentheists describe themselves as uh, this, uh, like God is the soul within the world or, or something along those lines. So Moltmann, in that regard, would be a panentheist. You have certain other pantheists, panentheists, I'm sorry, let me be clear on that, uh, who would see God being all and in all in, in the end times. And so they would describe themselves as panentheists um, or that God gets caught up in the processes of the world. And so, so that's a little different than the, the pantheistic one. Um, I, I, I find problems with those uh, views, but um, for the most part, I mean, I think you could. I mean, John Cooper is the guy who who's written on this, who who argues that well, there are some Christians who who may indeed, or there's some panentheists who may indeed be Christians, um, but. The, the view we're talking about is process panentheism. And and I think here, if you're someone like Moltmann, you're certainly making a distinction between God and the world. Uh, God is the creator of the world, even though the world is in God. Process panentheism would argue, much like Plato's um, uh, demiurge, right? Uh, he's the one who's really kind of moving the world around, uh, along. Um, he's not ultimate. Uh, the, the god of process panentheism isn't ultimate. Um, really, ultimate reality consists of three things. It consists of God, but it also consists of the universe, and it consists of this mysterious feature, um, uh, this metaphysical principle called creativity. And it's this creativity that's kind of fueling everything else, even God. So, so for the process idea of God, God is just like you and I, God is caught up in the processes of the world. He's changing. Uh, you know, God is growing for the better and that kind of thing. Remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Wars podcast. We got Ronnie Campbell on talking about his book, War Views and a Problem of Evil. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Rob Bowman on the show. He's been one of our popular guests, and he's talking about a new book he's got out on uh, Joseph Smith's visions and the resurrection of Jesus. How do these compare to each other? And I, I found this one to be an incredibly enlightening book. So uh, next week, if you want to talk about Mormonism, we're going to have an interesting discussion going on. So let's get back to this. And now, these are panentheists from a Christian perspective. I always like to ask, mm -hmm. could some of them be considered even evangelicals? Um, I think I think so. Um, again, I want to be kind of cautious here um, because I think like what we were talking about earlier 
um, you know, sometimes we got to be careful not to pigeonhole people into these these really um, broad categories. Again, I, I personally I think that there are some problems with panentheism. I think it, it makes God dependent on something outside of the divine self. Uh, so it really smacks against his aseity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that regard, uh, the idea that God, you know, doesn't need anything for his own existence, doesn't depend on the world, is not a contingent thing. And, and so in that regard, um, I find it problematic. But at the same time, I think you can have some who, some some people who think that uh, Jesus is God incarnate, believes in the Trinity. Um, they would even hold that that God created the world ex nihilo and things like that. Uh, and and yet um, there's a sense in which um, God. Uh, I, 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 for lack of better words, needs the world for for God's own uh, self uh, actualization to some extent. Uh, and and I would say there are some actually some reformed uh, I would put in that camp. <laughs> I will not name names, but uh, I, I would say there there are some. Uh, but yeah, I mean the the thing is when I look at heresy in Scripture. Um, you know, are they denying that Jesus uh, is the Son of God in flesh? And no, I mean, I don't think so. Are they denying the doctrine of the Trinity? No. And, and so that's where it gets a little problematic and gets a little fuzzy there. Yeah, I remember when I was starting out my apologetics journey, I was in Bible college at the time, and I took a class on systematic theology. And I had a lot of problems with what the professor was saying, and I was still even mm-hmm. a relative noob in the field, but seemed, students seemed to gather around my desk, and it, if I raised my hand, there was this timer they had going on. They, they can see, how long is this hand going to be up before a professor acknowledges him? I think the record was 19 minutes. But, oh, my. Yeah, that's the kind of student I was. But I remember how once in class, a class professor had said, God created man because he needed someone to love. And mm-hmm. that was just so problematic to me. And one thing I said that never got responsive was, well, geez, if God just needs someone to love like that, the smartest thing humanity could do is all get together and hold God for ransom. Right. Yeah, I, I, I and I've heard that too. Um, it reminds me when I was, uh, you know, the church I grew up in, uh, a lady got up and she recited a poem very similar to that. And, and it just kind of always, you know, bothered me. And it's kind of like, uh, to me, it's like nails going, you know, against a chalkboard kind of thing. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who had that, that kind of mentality. And then really that's, that's the heart of much of what's being taught in, uh, Christians who are navigating towards this process, panentheistic view. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's get on then to the, the main question we have again. What about life. How do panentheists explain life? Yeah, and again, they're going to take a very uh, evolutionary approach to this. I mean, I, I, as far as the process panentheists go, I, I can't really think of any who, who would not take that approach. Um, really, the whole uh, getting to that word metaphysics again, their whole process metaphysics, which is grounded in uh, the thought of Alfred North Whitehead, um, 
really it just promotes the idea uh, that you have these uh, what he calls actual occasions, these these events that kind of form into these larger societies until eventually you get um, these aggregates like you and I, the, you know, human beings and, and animals. And so these larger aggregates um, and who wield some kind of, of consciousness or something like that. And so, yeah, the whole model really is is based on an evolutionary uh, view of things. And consciousness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy and problematic. Um, uh, you you have uh, in in process panentheism the uh, I mentioned these actual occasions, and it's very similar to panpsychism. You know, panpsychism the view that there's this this uh, drop of mental within every basic constituent of reality. For them, rather than calling it panpsychism, they they hold to something called apparent experientialism, and so these actual occasions. Uh, they have experiences, and they are having these experiences like every split second. And so, you know, God sends, and this is the thing: God, for the pan, process panentheists, is non-interactionist in the sense that God can't cause them to do anything. Rather, God sends these messages to them, which you call initial aims, and He sends these aims to these actual occasions. Uh, and they have these like split second decisions that they have to make or, you know, are they going to follow God's aims or are they going to kind of do their own thing? And so then they form into these societies. And 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 so you have all these like cellular awarenesses, awarenesses of uh, within um, these actual occasion occasions. And then uh, in some way, they kind of form a unified uh, consciousness. Um and this this goes up against what we, uh, J.P. Moreland calls the combination problem. You know, how is it that these little minds all come together to form one unified mind? Uh, how how does that bring about uh, any kind of unification? And, and so that that's certainly a problem that uh, process panentheists have to deal with. Yeah, no. There was something you said about, you know, God cannot cause people to do things. There was a lot mm-hmm. of us in the Christian camp who would look and say the exact same thing. Yeah, God cannot force your hand. You have free will. God can't make you do something. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, I I, I, um, I fall into the libertarian camp. So uh, when we think of libertarian freedom, um, I, I see that as something that God has bestowed upon human beings uh, as a great gift. And so we have these capacities to make these choices. But the difference between this idea and the the process panentheistic view is that metaphysically it's impossible for God to cause these creatures to do anything. Um, and, and so for us, I mean, even though God, that is not God's normal, you know, his, his, uh, uh, way of operating, his normal way of 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 uh, working, um, we would say that God has the capacity and the power to to call certain things to happen in the world. You know, uh, he could. I mean, if he wanted, he could pick any of us up, or you know, there's all kinds of things that we could. You know, God could do uh, metaphysically, and even if if God chooses not to, and he's he's kind of worked that in as part of the system of how he normally operates. Um, he nevertheless can, and so for the process panentheists, they would say no. That's that's 
that's impossible for God. God doesn't have those kind of powers. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I, I think we've answered live. We did speak about consciousness, or have mm-hmm. we not? Uh, yeah, somewhat. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we were talking about so many things, I kind of lost track of it a bit. Metaphysics of good and evil. Now, most of them would probably hold to some objective good and evil, wouldn't they? Yeah, and I think that, again, I, you know, as, as I look at these views, it seems to me there's a progression. Um, uh, the naturalist is the least plausible view. You know, pantheism is more plausible with some of these things. I think process panentheism, uh, despite its, its, you know, once you get past the, their, their metaphysics, they, they really do try to provide some kind of objective grounds for good and evil and also for human responsibility. Um, they, you know, they certainly fall into the libertarian camp that human beings have the capacity to choose. I mean, the, the, pretty much their whole metaphysical theory is is based on uh, these actual occasions having these capacities, uh, you know, the, these, these elements of freedom. Um, but for them, it, it's interesting because when we normally couch um, good and evil as, as metaphysical or moral categories, um, and, and predominantly moral, you know, you think of in the sense that if I go and, um, you know, I beat somebody up or something like that, I've done a great moral injustice, you know, I mean, because we, we think of what human beings are and, and, and God's law and things like that. Uh, but for for uh, pro- process panentheists, um, it's more about aesthetics. So you think about these actual occasions coming together to form these aggregate societies and and, and so forth, and and they're joining together. And as these these um, uh, aggregates become more and more uh, or larger, these societies become larger, it takes much more energy, intensity, and so forth to kind of keep them together. And, and so really, um, their, their understanding of good and evil has more to do with this aesthetics of, of, of unity and intensity and things like that and keeping, keeping these, these things together as a whole uh, versus uh, moral qualities. Now, they they won't deny that there are elements of of, of moral qualities with with good and evil, but but for the most part, it's aesthetic. Yeah, I, I think you dealt with a human responsibility there as well mm-hmm. in that one. Mm-hmm. So overall, I mean, I know you reject panentheism, but it seems more consistent than a lot of other positions, doesn't it? It, it is I think it's much more consistent than the other two uh, and again I think there it, it's certainly more plausible compared to the other two but uh, I, I think where it starts to, to fall apart is you have to pretty much accept their their understanding of, of metaphysics and so you have to you have to hold to the process metaphysic in order for the whole thing to go, especially this this idea of creativity, and um, you know you, you have to pretty much grant that for the whole system to work, and and it, and it gets problematic there, and, and so it stands or falls on 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 accepting um, process metaphysics. Mm-hmm. So now let's get to theism here and mm-hmm. we're not going to even start with christian theism but just 
general theism, when we talk about theism, what is entail about, you know, everyone who's a theist pretty much say, yeah, we agree on this? Yeah, I think for the most part, theists uh, hold to this idea that there is a God. Um, and, and here, I mean, some people would even classify pantheist as theist or polytheist as theist. Um, but that's not generally how it's it's used in the literature. When we talk about theism, uh, we mean that there is a, a, a such a being or person as God uh, who's the creator of all things, who's eternal, uh, you know, uh, has the omni properties, omnipotence, omniscience, omnibenevolent, uh, the creator of the world, ex nihilo, you know, creating the world ex nihilo, uh, out of nothing or out of no pre-existing materials, that kind of thing. Um, I think that would be a standard starting place for the idea of, of theism. You know, I mean, William Rowe, he he kept it at the the three omni properties and and um, maybe a creator of the world or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what? How does theism then address life? I mean, how did life get here? Well, I think theists have a variety of different perspectives on this, um, but for the most part, um, you know, you could put them into two broad can- categories. As you've already mentioned, some theists hold to something like theistic evolution, uh, where where others would see that creation itself is a special act of God, and so God, um, you know, e- even e- even not just uh, not just uh, creating ex nihilo, but even um, the creation of uh, individual species and, and uh, human beings and things like that. And that's probably, I mean, it, personally, that's where I would fall. But I, I do recognize in the book that there are a variety of different positions on this. Mm-hmm. And what about consciousness? Yeah, for consciousness, I think there are, again, a variety of different uh, positions on this. I mean, you have folks like Trenton Merrick and and others who... Uh, you know, when they think of consciousness, um, they're physicalists. But I, I think some of the same problems that naturalists have with physicalism are found among those those theists who who are physicalists. And so, uh, but but you have phys- you have some who are physicalists. Uh, Robert Adams, if I if I'm if I'm correct in this, I think I read an article by him where he he is actually a panpsychist. So he holds the panpsychism, um, but I, I think for the most part, uh, the, the theists uh, have generally gravitated more to something like uh, some form of dualism. Mm-hmm. And then the metaphysics of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and here, uh, I think that. We would there's 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 some differences of views here, um, but f- for the most part, uh, Christians or theists would take that that uh, good is um, you know the privation or sorry evil is the privation of the good, or they would see that anything that's good is grounded ultimately grounded in God, and so so you see that God is the um, uh, you, you know, any good in the world is ultimately d- derivative from him. Ontologically, he is the good, and that would be more of a Platonic idea here. Um, but when we find goodness in the world, that goodness uh, reflects uh, something that's true of who God is. Yeah, I, I do get into debates sometimes with a lot of Christians who present, you know, I'm going to just say God is the good, because I still can say, 
you still have the same problem here, Valkyrie. You haven't defined what good itself is. Mm-hmm. I mean, just saying right. God is a good, that doesn't tell me. I, I mean, I can say, okay, but I had a good pizza last night. What does that have to do with God? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you certainly have to make some clarifications on that. I mean, when we think um, of, of my own personal views, I, I do take it that um, when we think of good states, uh, we're talking about human flourishing. We're talking about what's best for the other individual. And so um, when we think even God's own goodness here, uh, I, I, I think it's something like God um, is, uh, y- you know, uh, looking out for the best for his creatures or something, or what's going to promote the flourishing of the individual or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And you probably know what my perspective is coming from the classical Thomistic position. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Aristotelian, I'm sure, right? <laughs> oh, yes, very much so. But, but uh, I, I think I think you and I have talked about that a bit, you yeah. know, the, the whole teleological aspect, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. yeah I, 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 I remember seeing something I shared in my Facebook memories today. It was a list of whoever top 15 philosophers of all time. He has like the first 14 says you can't rank them at all because they all have their strengths and weaknesses. Something like that. Equal 14 words. But number one, Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Now, what were you saying there? Oh, I, 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 I don't remember right at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like we've discussed this kind of thing before. Mm-hmm. All right. So if, if you still can't remember, that's okay. We're, we'll just move on here. Uh, oh, that's, point, uh, yeah. point, let's move on a bit to talking about what our listeners can do here. Because Deeper Waters is a listener-supported ministry. And I really want to encourage you to uh, make your donations to us, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com, and if you go there, you have the link on the side, it says help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, and you click on a link and you get taken to a ministry of risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place, those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona, you make your donation, and then you get in touch with me. Or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and said, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to be tax-deductible. And we will get that donation, and yes, it will be tax-deductible. Like I said, you can buy ebooks that I have written, such as Creed of the Ages, The Apostles' Creed Today's Christ- in Today's Christian, or hopefully out by now. I'm still looking to find someone who can write the foreword to this for me. Um, Dawkins and the Doc, but look at his book, Outgrowing God, or the ones I've co-written, The Mention Boss Project, God and Natural Disasters, Groundless, um, Christian Answers, Fish Generations Questions, and Defining Inerrancy and Contextualizing Inerrancy. And if you can't do any of these, please just go on iTunes and leave a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast. It means so much to me. Now, Dr. Campbell, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Yeah, I think that um, one that I've just really been impressed with, and and I'm I'm thankful that that God is using um, the the Ratio Christi uh, groups on campuses. I think it's just a phenomenal uh, thing that God is uh, is using to to um, bring uh, apologetic work 
to college campuses, assisting other um, collegiate organizations and coming alongside them and, 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 and really not trying to take over or take their place, but really to assist them and, and really to uh, just um, give the answers that, that people are, are having questions about um, regarding the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah, I encourage people to go to Mastio Christie. I've done some work with him before in the past. Great organization, great way to help out others. Now let's get back into the book here. And human responsibility. What does theism say about human responsibility? And again, there can be many different things here. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think most theists gravitate to one or two major positions on, on human responsibility. Uh, many are compatibilists. And uh, by that, we mean that a person does that which uh, she or he most desires. And so they compatibilists try to hold simultaneously to this idea that humans have free will and that God determines all things. Mm -hmm. and, and so in this sense, um, it, it is the person who's genuinely doing the action. So, uh, you know, if, if a person robs someone, they're the one who's doing the action. But what they do is that which they most desire. And so in this case, the desires then are brought on by prior causes. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, that's that's why it's it's, it's determined uh, determinism. Uh, and, and so so there are a lot of Christians, especially those within the reform camp, uh, gravitate towards uh, compatibilistic uh, freedom. Uh, the other view is libertarian freedom. And then that's the position I advocate more for in the book. Uh, this idea that we do have a genuine capacity to choose between alternatives when it comes to moral responsibility, uh, you know, uh, you know, a person can choose to to help a little old lady across the road, or they can do uh, push her down. You know, there's that capacity within any person to do that, and hopefully, we would they would choose the former one, right? Um, but 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 there is genuine uh, capacity between two alternatives. And so, and I think if, 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 you know, if one holds to something like libertarian freedom, I think there's, there's more problems with compatibilistic freedom. Um, but, uh, libertarian freedom, I think there's certainly, uh, grounds for human responsibility. Yeah. My, my thinking on this usually is I try to avoid the Calvinist Arminian debate, but I'm not a Calvinist. I just don't mm -hmm. care about the whole debate. Mm -hmm. And my thinking is God and God is sovereign. Man has free will. I don't have a clue how those work together, but they do. <laughs> right. Uh, kind of like people in the end times, it'll all pan out, right? <laughs> no, I'm very specific on my end times views. Oh, or right. Orthodox <laughs> preterism for the win, my guy. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is one side debate I will get into, but that, that's, okay. for, that's for another <laughs> show here. So. Now, you also argue, though, that of all kinds of theism, Christian theism has a unique way to answer evil that others don't. And what is that? Yeah, well, I think part of it comes down to, uh, you know, looking at God and God's, uh, you know, his, this. it gets back to this issue of aseity. I think that a, a when we think of of God as a loving being, if you take these other theistic pos positions that are are uh, Unitarian and 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 non-Trinitarian, what you end up with is, I think, and I would argue something more like panentheism, that in, in order, if God is truly 
loving, essentially loving, then God must have some other to love. And if God loves some other outside of the divine self, then um, then uh, that is not uh, you know God needs something else for his for the divine self actualization or something along those lines, and, and so f- for me a trinitarian approach really uh, resolves this issue, uh, it, it answers that, um, but also I think when we look at a specifically Christian response to evil. Um, when, especially thinking from a Trinitarian perspective, uh, it gets back to something we talked about earlier on. Then we think about God, um, uh, not only the question of why does God allow evil, but what is God doing about evil? And at the heart of the Christian gospel, at the heart of, of, of Christianity, is God taking on our fallen human nature. Obviously, Jesus himself was not fallen, but he took on our humanity, right? Um, and he became like us in every way without sin. And, and you think of our finiteness, you know, the fact that we're our finitude, uh, that we are finite beings. Um, uh, God uh, took on our humanity so that we can um, have a relationship with him. Um, and that really is the heart of the gospel. But in doing that, God had to uh, you know, experience the things that we experience, you know, think of, of, uh, the, look at Jesus and his humanity, uh, experienced, um, not only the pain and suffering on the cross, but only, but also, uh, he was, um, uh, left by his friends and his, uh, you know, his, his darkest time there, uh, just before his crucifixion, he was abandoned, um, you know, he's ridiculed and spit on. Uh, he, you know, so he suffered uh, in, in his humanity. And I think through uh, this, this God knows the kind of suffering that we, we experience and is able to relate with us in that. Um, so, so the work of the cross, um, reversing the effects of sin, the, the power of sin uh, in the world, uh, re- reversing evil in the world, um, you know, think about the resurrection itself, that in the resurrection, God overcomes death. He overcomes the, the, the thing that opposes us the most. He overcomes that. I mean, think, think of what Paul says, um, uh, thanks be to God, you know, Jesus is the one who, who overcomes this. And, uh, and, but, but not only that, we see that God is also working in and through the Spirit who empowers Christians uh, to live out holy and good lives, uh, who should be on the front lines uh, with a lot of these social issues, uh, you know, and, and not only that, just, you know, humanitarian issues and things like that. Uh, think of all the places in Scripture where it talks about taking, you know, like what we see in James, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to take care of widows and orphans in their time of distress. See, God is working to make us new so that we can do something about the evil in the world. And, and so we see a, a fully a Trinitarian approach here, I think, provides a more robust uh, response to what God is actually doing in the world to combat evil. 
Hi, this is Justin Briley of the Unbelievable Radio Show and Podcast, recommending another podcast to you. Nick Peters is a deep thinker, a friend of mine, and he has an inspiring faith. So you should listen to him and his excellent guests on the Deeper Waters show. So keep going deeper and keep getting uh, wetter, I guess. Blessings, Nick. Keep up the good work. Now, let's uh, look into this answer a little bit here, of course, which is what we do around here. Um, shortly before the whole COVID thing started, I was at a grocery store, and I saw this bulletin board there, this thing that I normally see about getting a free home Bible study. And by mm-hmm. God, I jumped at the chance for that, because I would love a free home Bible study. And mm-hmm. you, when you hear that, you know automatically what's going on with the free home Bible study. <laughs> right, that, right. <laughs> and for those listeners out there who are unaware, that is for Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I said, go to this website and sign up. And that's what I did. Ended up getting in a phone conversation with a leader in the Jehovah's Witness Church who we, he tried to talk to me about this for a little bit. Mm-hmm. It didn't last too long. He even had a return call and I said, and for you, I said, hey, you can come by any time. But, you know, these people, they argue vehemently against the Trinity. So mm-hmm. if you're going to tell me, you know, the Trinity helps explain the problem of evil, then my Jehovah's Witness friends would say, why should I believe the Trinity? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that part of it, you know, when we look at uh, – and that and it's not, it is an interreligious debate. Right at that point, I, I still think it's it's not an inner, you know, it's not an in-house debate like Christians would have, um, because they're denying I think something that's essential to Christian teaching. Yeah, Christian I, I, I said a while ago, for instance, I'm an Orthodox preterist, but I'm not about to say my friends who are dispensationalist or non-Christians on those grounds. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, and so there are a lot of things that we can. Agree you know, just disagree on, but still remain true, I think, to Orthodox Christianity. And the Trinity doctrine is not one of those that a person can give up. Um, So for, for, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of it, I mean, it seems to me that a lot of the energy then would have to be spent on uh, looking at some of the key key texts in Scripture, uh, talking about the nature of monotheism, you know, does monotheism itself allow for something like the doctrine of the Trinity? And, and I think that it does. Uh, you know, I mean, we look at um, even in the Old Testament, uh, there are passages that are really bizarre, uh, such as Yahweh was raining down fire from Yahweh. <laughs> what in the world does that even Genesis mean? Genesis 19, if I was wondering. Right. And so you, you have that. Uh, and then there are times where you have, it seems like, these these two Yahwehs. And, and this is something someone like Mike uh, um, Michael Heiser would point out a lot in his, his, uh, some of his work. Um, but, but you have the angel of Yahweh, you know, where you, you, you have these instances in the Old Testament where uh, people like Gideon are offering sacrifices to him and then he accepts it. You know, if you read um, Exodus, uh, you know, the incident where Moses goes to the burning bush, it's really easy to read past that. But it's actually the angel of Yahweh who comes down upon the bush, right? But yet it's Yahweh himself who's speaking out from the bush. And so you see a lot of instances where there's a blurred line between this physical manifestation 
and and also uh, you, you know uh, God. And, and so what what is acceptable? Now, what's fascinating is when you begin reading the Gospels and reading the the New Testament writings. Uh, you know, Bauckham makes this argument that when you look at um, uh, who God is in Jewish thought, they're applying all of these same categories to Jesus. For example, Jesus is the creator. Uh, we find that in, in, in um, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where they've taken the Shema. You know, Paul has taken the Shema, and he's used all that language, and he's applying it both to Jesus, uh, the Father, and to Jesus. Um and, and both as being creators of the world here, right? Or, or Jesus is the agent by which God created the world. Um, you, you see things like uh, Jesus's preexistence. Uh, you find that in Colossians 1, um, well, 15 and following, where he says he's the uh, image of the invisible God, um, and he's the one who created all things. He's sustaining all things. I mean, that's language that goes beyond Jesus being a mere man, right? Um uh, you, you have Jesus being worshipped. Uh, these are all things that were only a, considered to be true of God, but yet the New Testament writers are applying these things to Jesus. And, and so uh, coming out of the gates, and, and interestingly enough, I, I really want to get this out there. A long time ago, I, I gave a paper on um, – Jesus's preexistence using something like Habermas's minimal facts argument for the resurrection uh, for Jesus's preexistence, and you know a lot of people will say, well, you go to John, John, it's like one of the oldest, or you know, it's one of the oldest uh, gospels, you know. I mean, so it's it's a late dating, and but but as you begin looking at the preexistent doctrine, um, you actually find it in some of the earliest Christian works. Uh, and, and so it's when you begin comparing that, you, you begin to see, you could build something of a minimal facts argument for Jesus's preexistence. And so, so all these categories which were applied to God, now they're now applying to Jesus. And, and not only that, I mean, we find instances in scriptures where I think they clearly call Jesus God. Uh, John one one, obviously, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now our Jehovah's Witnesses friends are going to have a different view on that. But what do we do with John one eighteen, right? We know that in one fourteen, the only uh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But then in John one eighteen, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, you know, this is an inclusio. He's 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 looking at, you know, you have verse one, and it goes all the way down to eighteen. That's kind of like let's put the bow on the present here. You know, the only begotten God distinction, right? Who is at the Father's side? He's made him known. So you have unity and distinction there um, between one one and then one eighteen. So there's a lot of data I think in in the the New Testament. And one more, and I'll just close that part with this. If we look, I think Paul had something of a Trinitarian formula early on, and uh, he had three different ways of speaking of God. You had God the Father, Jesus. The Lord, so you have God and Lord, and then you have the Spirit, and you see that that triangulation of those terms being applied to the Father, Son, and I mean, to the Father, Son, and Spirit. They're already in Paul's language, and so Trinitarianism wasn't something that was developed later on, but we had it coming out of the gates, I think. So, yeah, I remember when I was talking to this service witness on the phone, and said, "Where, where do you see Trinity?" 
in the Bible, because yes, for one of us, oh, I'd love to talk about Jesus and the Trinity. So where do you see in Bible? So I was talking, where you see it, the baptism of Jesus, you see it in Second Corinthians three twelve, you see it in Jesus being named Emmanuel, you see it in mm-hmm. the Christianization of Shema. My guess is he was highly unprepared for that when not expecting that when just expecting someone to say, Regis, you're right, the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. And you know, this is a problem I think for many Christians, they don't know what difference the Trinity makes, and they don't know how to defend it. It's kind of like, it's this nice little doctrine, and we'll get it out when we have to beat up Jehovah's Witnesses. But that's right, about right. it. And then I think right. how Dan Wars says that, said in the case of real Jesus, had a, he said, I found the perfect verse to deal with the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and it only shows up in the KJV, and that's First John 5, 7. I says, oh, we have to do a better job here. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's not a good text. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that people get confused, and you're you're making a great point here, Nick. That that people get confused with um, just because the term's not there doesn't mean the concept isn't. I mean, you read early on Irenaeus and some of these other guys. I mean, they were they didn't have the right terminology, but all the all the parts of the concept are there, in, 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 and they recognize the distinction between the Father and Son and the Spirit. And it was creedal early on, and, and, and someone like Irenaeus. Well, let's look a little bit more here, because you got someone like Dale Tuggy, who's not mm-hmm. a Jehovah's Witness, as far as I know, but claims mm-hmm. to be a Christian still, and you interact with an argument you presume that if God is going to be perfectly loving, he needs mm-hmm. to be Trinitarian in mm-hmm. some sense. Now, can you explain what the argument is and why Tuggy objects to it? Yeah, Tuggy, it, he, he kind of equivocates uh, in his, his argumentation there on, on being uh, perfectly loving and loving perfectly. Um, and so he's like, uh, you know, he doesn't understand why God can't just perfectly love himself, right? Um, and then that doesn't necessitate that he has to love someone outside of himself. But but again, I think he's making somewhat of an equivocation on that point. But, I mean, when we reflect on the very nature of love itself, what is love? And, and for someone like Tuggy, I mean, and I tried to give a little bit more of a philosophical response to him, but, but if he's going to accept the scriptures, then you have to define love from what the scriptures say. And so I think that when we look at the very nature of love itself, it is other-centered. You know, it's not directed toward the self. And and that's part of the reason why I included that bit at the C.S. Lewis and Paralandra, where the green lady is, you know, when she looks into the mirror and she sees herself and and she's surprised by it, you know, she's like, uh, that, you know, thing – uh, you, you know, a, a, a fruit cannot enjoy itself or something. I forget what the exact line is. Uh, but the idea of love is the enjoyment of another. And so if we want to say that God is essentially loving, um, how, you know, it seems to me it's a very truncated idea of what divine love would be. Um, it gets very close, I think, to the Aristotelian 
uh, and no offense to, yeah. to my to mystic friends here. And this is more of Aristotle's, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the divine contemplation, right? <laughs> yeah, Aquinas wouldn't agree with that part. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, the, the other part you have as necessary for this is the resurrection. And we need to talk about that a little bit, but I'm not sure how helpful you're going to be here because I don't know why someone who studied under Gary Habermas would know anything <laughs> about the resurrection of Jesus, you know? You know, honestly, uh, my biggest regret in this whole book is that I didn't do more on the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Because I think at the heart of it, the resurrection is God's answer to the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. um, what he does in and through the person of Jesus, uh, you know, it's it's pointing toward our new hope, uh, the new heavens and a new earth. And, and so um, uh, the, the idea that... Um, God loved us so deeply that, again, as we mentioned, he would become like us in our humanity. Uh, uh, you know, he experienced the pains and sufferings and, and evil that we did in through the person of Jesus. Uh, uh, but yet God doesn't leave it at that. He He raises Jesus from the dead. And, and the resurrection itself, I think, um, is one of the deepest and most profound responses to to evil. You know, we, we think about our future hope. I mean, we look at all the pain and suffering that we go in now, uh, we're, that we're experiencing now. And for many of us, it's much more than what I'm experiencing for some, for some people. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, but Paul in, in Romans 8 um, talks about this idea that uh, the groaning of this world pales in comparison to what God is going to do. And... Um, you know, and again, I think it gets at the heart of what what's behind God's uh, um, motivation in, in creation. Wasn't um, I? I don't think um, you, know, you, you hear you hear the standard view that um, God created um, uh, you know all, all things for, for His glory. Well, certainly He did, but I don't think it's merely that. I think God wanted to bring about a kingdom. You know, He wanted to bring about. Um, people and and th uh, you know creatures that he could share life with um and, and i think that uh you know because of sin um i, I don't think it's just, uh, you know necessarily god didn't know any of this was going to happen he certainly did uh, but all along god had the desire to to bring about um, a world in which he can share life with with other creatures, and but it, it takes a certain certain amount of, of of freedom and and reciprocation and things like that. And so it's what he does in and through the work of the cross and the resurrection to make that possible. That we've rebelled against God, and now He wants to restore us to that place where we can have this reciprocating relationship with Him, uh, a, a deep loving relationship, you know. And, 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 and really, the resurrection highlights uh, the newness of creation that he's, he's going to bring about. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Campbell, we've been talking about this. We've I got a few minutes left, maybe like 12 minutes before we have to start wrapping up. But I'm mm -hmm. sure that all the things are going mean, as we're recording this right now, the country's starting to open up again after COVID, but we've got a lot of riots going on over issues of racism and police brutality and there are people who are listening I'm saying this sounds like all nice just pie in the sky stuff but this really isn't making a difference to what I'm doing in my life have I just wasted my time listening to this 
Um, you know, that that really gets to the heart of it. I mean, it, it is uh, the problem of evil. It, it, it has a theological element to it. It has a philosophical, but really it's an existential problem. It's something that all of us face. And we're seeing that now in our country. We're seeing it with the epidemic. But we're also seeing it with the riots and the racism and, and various things going uh, police brutality, but also, and you know, the, the consequences from the riot and really at the heart of it, you know, it, it's a human issue. You know, we, it, it's a human issue. We, we have at the, I, I love the way C, um, N.T. Wright puts it, you know, we, a lot of times we want to blame, blame the other person. We want to say it's us versus them, you know, but he, he makes this point that evil runs right down through each and every one of us. And why does this matter? It matters because, especially for Christians to think about this, that the whole reason that God has redeemed us is so that we can be new creatures. We can live out a life that fights against evil. We can live out a life empowered by his spirit as the church to, to um, combat the evil that's taking place in the world. Um, you know, a lot of times it doesn't it doesn't happen the way we would think it would. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the book of Philemon. You know, a lot of people see that little letter and they're like, what in the world? Why is this in here? Well, you know, if you think about uh, the Roman Empire at that time, uh, the social structure is that many of the slaves belong to these, uh, you know, they belong to these homes. These, you know, you have the head of the household. Uh, then, then under that, you had a hierarchical structure with the wife and then the children and then the slaves, right? And, and even though um, it wasn't the same kind of slavery that we see, we've seen here in the past in, here in the United States, it nevertheless was uh, a, a slave class where, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, if a slave was caught stealing or, or if they ran away from their master, um, you know, they could inflict these harsh punishments on them. And so you have Paul writing to this guy, Philemon, over this guy, Onesimus, who has run away and possibly took something from uh, Philemon. And, and Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And he says to him, I sent him that back, uh, and, and my hope is that he's no longer going to be just merely a slave, but now you can see him as a brother. And this is the heart of what the gospel does. The gospel, um, you know, it causes us, when we really understand it, to lower ourselves and to raise up the other person simultaneously. It's seeing that we are on an equal platform as human beings. And, and that, uh, you know, uh, as Paul said in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, you know, this, this idea that uh, the gospel puts us all on an equal plane at the cross of Christ, and 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 that's the power that God is in working uh, in the church to to bring about change in the world if we truly grasp it and understand it. So now's the time. So, you know, something uh, I tell people about this is you know, that you know if. You're, I, I tell people who are studying projects, look, if you have a pastor of a church one day and this mother comes to you and talks about how her teenage son just died in a car accident, please do not become a philosopher or an apologist about that moment because I will come up and smack you. 
Right. Because yeah. A discussion like this, where if someone's going for evil, it is not going to help them. They need a pastor, a therapist, a counselor. Mm-hmm. But later on, when the emotions are passed and they're able to process things, this kind of discussion will be very helpful for them, won't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And and here's one of I mean, something that's often overlooked in these discussions is that our understanding of who God is and how God acts in the world should inform how we live out our lives and act in the world. And so there's there's a direct correlation between our understanding of God and how we are to be as human beings, I think at least. And you're exactly right. I mean, what they're not looking for are these these drawn out answers, you know. Um, what they're looking for is someone to come alongside them and to put their arm around them and just hug them and and care for them and show the love of Jesus to them. Um, really just being um, – it, it gets back to that idea of deep love that I was talking about, you know, that we now have, because of what God is doing, this capacity to respond to the other person in a deep way. And, 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 and um, you're right. You know, later on when they're, the emotions are, have, have gone, that's, that's when you start talking about these, the, you know, these theological philosophical issues, but really it's, it's, it's coming alongside that person and, and loving them and caring for them. And, and you're right, you know, they need pastors and, and therapists, but they also just need friends sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, something I've told, I mean, we live in an apartment complex. We've got several neighbors around here and one of the things we told when you're suffering and you don't know what to do one of the best things you can do is go knock on your neighbor's door and say hey what can i do to help you out that's right yeah yeah i mean it's uh it's one of the best therapies is to to to, to act out selflessly toward the other person <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. but what else would you recommend right now then for someone going through suffering, and especially if they're having theological concerns about something. Why is a good God allowing this kind of suffering to go on in life? Yeah, um, one of the things I, I would really want to encourage people to realize that, um, and, and is that some people want to put God as the cause of this evil. Mm-hmm. And, and I really would want to just say, look, you know, the reason that we're experiencing evil is because we live in a world that's fallen and corrupt. Um, again, getting back to the fact that, that we all are broken and, and our world's broken. And, and, and really God is, is trying to, to bring about uh, a newness to that, you know. Um, so so I, would, I would encourage them not to, to put the blame on God. But really reflect on the nature of the world as it is, and 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 the sorry state of. I mean, that's what Athanasius says. The whole reason that Jesus became incarnate was for our sorry sake, you know, our our situation, our circumstances. Um, and and then I would uh, just encourage them to find friends. I would find uh, other believers um, who are you know who can be there to support them, to pray for them, to encourage them. And, and just, you know, who would give them a listening ear uh, when they need it. Um, uh, you know, if they're, if they're having uh, uh, anxiety or depression, you know, find a counselor, find someone to, to talk about those things. Um, you know, we, we weren't made to be in isolation. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the worst things you can do sometimes is when 
a natural disaster of some kind comes up and too many Christians are quick to say, well, this is God judging us because X, right. Y, Z. And I always say, well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Right. I mean, we're not prophets, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you know, I mean, uh, we don't know that. And and I think that's one of the worst things we can say, that, that this was God's judgment. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the world, I mean, we think of a lot of these uh, what we call natural disasters are natural goings on in the world that the world needs. You know, I mean, think of volcano eruptions and things like that. Um, it, it has uh, it's needed for, uh, you know, kind of keeping uh, the, the earth functioning properly. Um, so so even even those kinds of things, you know, are, are just a part of the regularity of the world. And and um uh, what would it be like if we lived in a highly irregular world? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, we, none of us could really know if if we're going to walk outside and we're not going to float in the air. Or, and there's all kinds of things that could bizarre things that could happen if we lived in a world that was highly irregular. Yeah, I, I think this people could also be able to read not just your book, but ones like say C.S. Lewis's *The Problem of Pain* or mm-hmm. Clay Jones's book on evil and suffering. I mean, there's plenty of good material out there for Christians who are hurting. No doubt. And there's been, uh, thankfully, in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of really good um, books that's been written on this um, that take more of that pastoral uh, existential approach. Um, one I would highly recommend is What Does the Bible Say About Suffering? I think that's what it's called. What Does the, the Bible Say About Suffering? Um, by Greg. Uh, I forget the, the first name. But um, it's really good. I think he takes a very even approach, and and it's very pastoral. Yeah, I'm looking it up right now just to be sure, because I, I don't want to leave my my people, my listeners hanging here. Yeah, I'll see if I can go to Amazon while I do that and look it up here. But in the meantime, we are coming to a point that we do have to start wrapping things up. The book is Worldviews and a Problem of Evil. At the time of recording here, the paper, on Amazon, the paperback version is fifteen thirty nine, and the Kindle version is nine ninety nine. So, um, Dr. Campbell, do you have any final thoughts? Do you, I mean, do you have a blog, website, an email where people can get in touch with you? I I have an old old blog but i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend it um but if if anyone has questions um they can email uh, me at my gmail account r p campbell at gmail.com oh sorry r p campbell 815 at gmail.com uh r p campbell 815 at gmail.com and i you know if you have questions about the book or if you want to you know maybe maybe you've got some 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 areas that you're you're dealing with maybe doubt or or uh, evil, I, I'd be, uh, you know, questions about evil, I'd be glad to, to dialogue. Yeah, uh, I think, what does the Bible say about suffering? I'm seeing one by uh, Brian Hahn Gregg. That's it, yeah. Fantastic book. Highly recommend it. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave for a deeper world's audience today? Well, I would just, you know, if, if you're struggling with, with uh, the problem of evil, I, I would just always encourage you to consider, you know, um, what is it that these other worldviews teach, you know, and, and I think as you go in and you see, they really don't have 
uh, the right kind of answers. I, I think you're going to find that that many of them, you know, their answers are are you know Christianity. And he provides uh, the strongest kinds of answers for this. And so I'd highly recommend you to just uh, look at these different worldview approaches and and just really think deeply about them uh, before you dismiss uh, Christianity. Yeah. Dr. Campbell, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we can, we'll see you back here again, maybe when you finish that next book you've got. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd, I'd be glad to do that. Thanks so much, Nick, for having me on. Send me a copy and we'll see it. All right. Sounds good. Well, I'd like to remind everyone of this better. Next week, we have Rob Bowman on about his book on Joseph's visions and Jesus' resurrection. For now, I'm Nick Peters. I affirm the virgin birth, and I am signing off. <laughs>